Hello, my name is David Levy. You are listening to the Observer's Notebook podcast. Enjoy. Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 100. Can you believe it? I've done 100 of these. I hope you've enjoyed them. Episode 100 of the Observer's Notebook podcast, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I again am Tim Robertson, the host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thank you for downloading and listening. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon, and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar, Lunar and Planetary Observers, otherwise known as the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends on donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, we receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com, slash Observer's Notebook. And if you'd like to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $18 a year. For more information, visit us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And yes, we're also on the Facebook. ALPO, just search for ALPO Astronomy. And this here podcast has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode of this podcast. And now... Episode 100 with comet discoverer and author David Levy. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to this special edition of the Observer's Notebook. Today we have a very special guest, David Levy. Welcome to the podcast, David. Well, thank you. I'm, a, I'm really honored to be a part of it tonight. Yeah, uh, we've met, I, I don't know if you, years ago, probably at Riverside Telescope Makers or something like that. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, so how are how are you and Wendy surviving this crazy time? Well, we're managing pretty well because uh, we're kind of homebodies anyway, mm-hmm. but we're just uh, homebodies a little more than usual. Yeah. And we're staying at home and other than groceries and medical appointments, we really don't go out. Although yesterday... I did go out briefly to uh, Star Arizona, where Dean Koenig is trying to put a um, encoder system on my new telescope. And if that succeeds, it'll make it even more useful than it already is. It already is my favorite telescope. I think. Oh, really? Just a beauty, yeah. What is it? Explore Scientific 12-inch Dob. Oh, my goodness. And somehow, I think the uh, mirror was ground and figured by the Lord Almighty himself because it is wonderful. Oh, fantastic. The images now, are sharp as tacks, and I just love using it. 
Now, I hear you have a lot of telescopes. <laughs> I've got a few. I'm down to yeah. about maybe uh, 17 or 18 of oh, them. Oh, my goodness. In different places. Yeah. <clears throat> Years ago, when numbers counted more than they do now, I think I had a total of 50 or 60, but wow. I've got rid of most of them. Wow. Most recently, I was able to donate my very first telescope, which is ECHO, to the Linda Hall Library of Science. Oh. And I'm hoping that they'll be able to use it for star parties and other events that they might have. Now, what was but, the first telescope? It was a three-and-a-half-inch reflector, F11 reflector, named ECHO. Oh. And so if any of you want to um, you write to me, you can actually use my email address, which really tells the story of ECHO and Eureka, which is my current uh, telescope of choice. So the address is Eureka <laughs> dot instead of Echo, which is all one word, at iCloud.com. Fantastic. Yeah. Now, stepping back in time a little bit, I mean, I don't know if you consider it the most, uh, most th the, the one thing you're most known for, but Shoemaker Levy 9 and the Jupiter Impact. Yeah. Is that, uh, do you figure that's the point when everything was on the table or? Yeah, I think so. That was, uh, it, it goes back, it's quite a story because I started searching for comets on the 17th of December, 1965. Mm. I was taking our beagle for a walk that night <laughs> and I, and the sky was pretty cloudy like it was today at the Kennedy Space Center right. when they were trying to launch those people into space and couldn't. But um, the, as I was walking the dog, the sky began to clear up a little bit, and I thought, great, I'm going to be able to um, start my comet search. And so just before midnight that day, I put my telescope towards Pollux and Castor, and I was able to do 10 minutes of comet searching. And those 10 minutes started a searching for comets, which I do to this day. Wow. And uh, what, what, what made you decide to look for comets? Kaiseki, it was uh, the, okay. com the great comet of 1965 discovered by Kaoru Akea, who was then in his early 20s, and Somu Seki, and they uh, discovered this comet, which turned out to be a really spectacular sun grazer. Hmm. And uh, I was really proud for them, having made that wonderful discovery. And as I'm walking down to school, wondering... What am I going to do as a career? <laughs> Most everything I've tried to do has been a failure, so there shouldn't be any different. So I should choose a project which is most likely to fail. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you did pick one that's pretty tough to succeed. Yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking of a Kaiseki getting brighter and brighter. And all of a sudden it hit me. I'm going to search for comets. Wow. I'm never going to find one because finding comets is hard. Searching for comets, though, is easy. It's an <laughs> ideal project for me. So I started two months later on the 17th of December of 1965, and I'm still doing it. Fantastic. Now, have you kept copious records of the whole I do. search process? Yeah, I've talked I'm to Don Mackholz on a number of occasions. He's, he knows like down to the minute of how many times he's Yeah, I'm proud to report that Don is doing much, much better. Yes. He uh, got pneumonia and was in the hospital. Yeah. For a while, they thought it was coronavirus, but right. he tested negative for that. But he, I'm proud to tell everyone that he is doing much, much better. 
Yes, he is. Yes, he is. That's okay. Good. Let's see what I've got here now. Uh, um, uh, just, just let's see here. Okay. I could, I did 917 hours and 28 minutes before I discovered my first comet. Wow. At any point during that time where you're like, what the heck am I doing here? Oh, at every point, <laughs> but I've always enjoyed it so much. Yeah. Uh, but now I have the information that as of May 24th, two, uh, 2020, I have now done 1,127.4 hours wow. since my most recent comet discovery. And you've got 23 now? 20, 23, yeah. 23. Fantastic. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Wow. Now, going back in time, you were born in Canada? I was born in Montreal, Canada, yes. What brought you to the United States? Wanting to have a clear sky. Really? Yeah. It certainly wasn't the politics. <laughs> I much prefer the politics in Canada. Is uh, there but, politics in Canada? <laughs> yeah, there is. <laughs> okay. I far prefer that. And yeah. uh, but it was but the United States, especially Arizona, offers clear sky. And right now there is not, I don't think there's a cloud anywhere in the sky. Temperature is pretty warm. It's like, it's like a hundred degrees Fahrenheit, about 40 yeah. something Celsius. But it's, um, but it's absolutely clear. There's no haze, no dust, especially with the drop in traffic lately. The dust levels have really gone down and particulate levels have gone down. So right. the skies are night after night. We're getting clear sky. And uh, just the other night, in fact, I was able to look at M81 and M82, and right nearby was Comet Panstars, ah. uh, the uh, one that was has been lurking around the northern sky for some right. time now. And I was able to see that just a couple of nights ago. Fantastic. Now, how old were you when you came to the U.S.? I was about 30. Okay. I arrived in 1979 in Arizona. I bought myself a small house in Corona de Tucson, which I kept for 17 years okay. until winding together. And in 1996, we moved to our current house, which is in Vail nearby. And uh, we have this lovely house with a beautiful view to the desert. Nice. And uh, I have a couple of observatory buildings out there, one dome and three sliding roof buildings. And, uh, all the oh. telescopes are in there waiting for, you know, <laughs> they pretty much rest during the daytime, but it's only when the stars come out that they begin to stir and wake <laughs> up and take a look each night from the night sky. That's great. Now, other than comets, you're also known as being a pretty pro prolific author. You've written yeah, quite I'm, a few books. It started when my mom told, criticized me for not reading enough. <laughs> so I thought I'd better start reading more. And then I thought, well, if you're going to read about the night sky, it's better if you write about it as well. And so I did my first book when I was like, my first book when I was like in grade four. Really? Ten years old. It wasn't about astronomy. It was about our beagle. The same <laughs> beagle that I was walking that night, I started searching for comets. <laughs> and and we started observing. We started. I started writing. And uh, my wife thinks that that's the best book I ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of support there. Huh? And uh, uh, it turns out that, um, yeah, it turns out that 
I am now doing, I, it turns out that I'm now doing another book based on that very first book. <laughs> and uh, maybe as Clipper to the Cosmos or um, something like The Beagle Takes It to the Cosmos or something like that. <laughs> it's about a beagle and his three or four human friends and a magic telescope that takes them off into space and takes them to the planets, to comets, asteroids. Now it's taking them to the stars. Ah, so it's a fiction book. Yeah, it is. Okay. Have you written other fictions? Or? No, this is the first fiction okay. book that I've written. All the other books are, or more, almost all the others, are about astronomy, and uh, which is something I've been interested in lately. <laughs> Very nice. Very yeah. nice. Now, you received your PhD? Yeah, I got that in 19, 2010. Wow. Uh, from the Hebrew University, and uh, there's a real story to that, because I think as I was growing up, my dad was encouraging me to get an interest in Shakespeare, and uh, I like to imagine that he threatened me that <laughs> if I didn't inherit his love of Shakespeare, he would disown me, take me out of his will. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he was very pleased when he found out that I had indeed inherited his love of Shakespeare and he encouraged me to go into other writers. And so for my doctorate, I decided to study the, the works of Shakespeare and his contemporaries and how the night sky might've influenced their work. I started that uh, as an English major at Acadia in Nova Scotia. Hmm. And uh, I, I still have my Shakespeare book from that time. And I noticed that where we get to Julius Caesar, for example, comets die many times before their death. The valiant never tastes of death but once. Mm. I, I noted that. And in King Lear, these late eclipses of the sun and moon pretend no good to us. And I put a mark there. But I never quite sat down to consider what it meant. And it wasn't until uh, I think it was the end of April of 1976 I was engaged at the time to my, what I now call my practice wife. and uh, You had one of those too, huh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and uh, we were out watching uh, with our local astronomy club in Montreal. Uh, we were out watching the, um, the, the Lear and Meteors. And as we were watching, I was seeing a few of them. And I, was, I let my mind wander. I wondered what other amateur and professional astronomers through history have actually taken a look at these meteors, which I'm looking at tonight. Mm -hmm. And then my mind wandered still further, and I thought, not just amateur astronomers, what about writers and poets and other people? Did they take a look at the night sky, and did it influence their writing? And then when I got to Queens to do my master's, I found out, that I found out about this lovely poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. It is a beauty. Mm. Now, those of you who have studied Gerard Manley Hopkins probably think of him as someone who is virtually impossible to read with his, um, with his uh, sprung rhythm and very difficult pronunciations. And he makes it, makes it almost impossible to read, let alone understand, until you get to this poem about a comet. He wrote it when he was at Oxford at Balliol College. And if you don't mind, I'm going to recite it to you right now. Be, that would be wonderful. <clears throat> I am like a slip of comet 
scarce worth discovery. In some corners seen bridging the slender difference of two stars. But when she sights the sun, she grows and sizes and spins her skirts out while her central star shakes its cocooning mists. And so she comes to fields of light. Millions of traveling rays pierce her. She hangs upon the flame-cased sun and sucks the light as full as Gideon's fleece. But then her tether calls her. She falls off. And as she dwindles, sheds her smock of gold amidst the sistering planets and then goes out into the cavernous dark. So I go out. My little sweet is done. I have drawn heat from this contagious sun. To not ungentle death, now forth I run. Oh, my. I wrote that on this December 13th, 1864. And I just fell in love with that poem. That'll make you fall in love with comets. <laughs> it did. And I was able to actually to determine that Hopkins was actually using Temple's Comet of 1864 when he wrote that poem. Because as the comet was moving through the sky, it indeed bridged the slender difference of two stars. It passed between the stars Iota Orgi and Beta Tauri. Two stars that are wow. uh, about the same brightness, even though a Beta and Taurus is about as bright as an Iota star in Orga. And uh, so the comet was just passing in between those two stars. And um, it was just so exciting to be able to make that connection and uh it was a connection not just with that comet but with the poet who wrote the poem about the comet it was absolutely um, incredible for me to be able to do that that's that's pretty beautiful were you able to actually research back and identify what what motivated him to write that beautiful poem yeah <clears throat> that's that's very nice Wow. I just, there, I just, and that's one of the member Norman McKenzie, who is a Hopkins scholar, was giving a lecture at Queens years later. And he said, I have never encountered any person who got more enthusiastic about a work of literature than <laughs> David did about Hopkins <laughs> and his comic <laughs> Well, that's a, a tying the two together, though. I must have been like a light bulb going off for you. Oh, yeah. It was, it was very special. Fantastic. In fact, when I first suggested to him Beta Tori and Iota Origai, he rejected it. He said, oh, no, because a Beta star is far brighter than an Iota star. And I knew I had him there. Mm. But, you know, you don't argue with your mm -hmm. thesis advisor. But I said very politely, I said, Dr. McKenzie, with all due respect, <laughs> Iota Origai is less than a magnitude fainter than Beta Tori. And mm -hmm. I know that. <laughs> he said, sure, I'm not going to argue that with you. <laughs> Smart man. <laughs> now, now, going back to when you first got interested in astronomy, you mentioned the comet you saw when you were walking your dog. But what, yeah, what, that was a Kiyosaki. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so was, was it, what was it before that, though, that really got you interested in astronomy? A meteor. It was, uh, really? I was at a summer camp, very homesick, and uh, I saw this shooting star. And it turned out it was an early example of the Omicron Draconid meteor shower. And I was able to see that meteor. And I asked my, uh, um, the, the other people in our cabin if they had seen it, and they said no. And then suddenly the thought hit me, was that shooting star meant just for me? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I'm going to keep that in my little 
eight-year-old David brain and let it <laughs> fester for a while and see what happens. And we've seen what happens. Wow. So you've had a real romantic uh, relationship with the stars. Yes, I see it very romantically. I see the stars as personal friends. Oh. My telescopes also, and I like to imagine when I go in at night and close the observatory, that the telescopes are talking to one another <laughs> and then talking about what they're doing and what they're up to and what they plan to look at in the future. Wow. That's, 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 that's wonderful. I love that. What do you wish you had known when you first started out? I really don't wish I'd known anything. If I had known everything, there would have been no point in getting into it in the first place. So I think I did it about right. I started I started with um, a lot of interest and very little knowledge. And, uh, and I just, um, by writing and reading and observing, I was able to learn a little bit here and a little bit there. And uh, it's just amazing uh, how, how you can pick up things and you put them in little drawer file, file cabinets in your mind. And you just call them when you need them. For example, I was on a, a Zoom program just before this one where this lady was saying, well, I'm look I want to look at this quasar, but I can't remember what it is. It's supposed to be fairly bright, but uh, not bright enough to be seen, but maybe I could get a picture of it. And I, she said, I can't remember what it was. And suddenly I said, was it 3C273 in Virgo? And she said, yep, that's it. <laughs> I saw that one while I was on my honeymoon with that practice wife that I had at the time. <laughs> oh, okay, that's good. I love it. Uh, who's Who in the world of astronomy has influenced you the most? In the world of astronomy, I would say there are four people. Okay. Uh, Bart Bach. Mm -hmm. The man who sold the Milky Way was one. Clyde Tombaugh and I became very close friends at the end of his life. And Gene and Carolyn Shoemaker. Uh, of course. Those four people really influenced me more than I can ever say. Yeah. Well, talk to me about Gene and Carolyn. Uh, hold on a second. What? what? Oh, Leslie Peltier didn't. He didn't influence me at all, did he? <laughs> Five people. Five people. Now, he, went, he used to look for what? Comets, I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, now what was your question again? Talk, talk to me about Gene and Carolyn. I was at a conference. Actually, much earlier than that, I was at Acadia. And uh, my geology professor, George Stevens, suggested that I get to know Gene Shoemaker. And I asked him why. And he said, because he has invented a new science, the science of astrogeology. And uh, it, is, it is very special what he has accomplished. Uh, and he's helping, he's helping the United States in his program to land people on the moon. And, by doing, and to help them do science on the moon when they're there. And in 1988, I was at a conference on asteroids, and we were at the uh, beginning. We were at the uh, coffee break after the first lecture, and this large man stomped his foot on the floor and pointed at me with his finger and beckoned <laughs> me to come forward. 
And I turned around wondering who the important scientist he was beckoning towards. And then he said, David, no, you, you're the one I want to meet. <laughs> and so I, I walked up to him and we talked for a while. And then he said, there's someone I want you to meet. And he took me into this other room and said, Carolyn, this is David. Mm-hmm. And that's how I met Carolyn. Yeah. And uh, we started observing together at the end of that year. And we started observing at Palomar the following year. We observed at Palomar from 1989 all the way up to 1996. Wow. And uh, we discovered a lot of comets together, yes. obviously none more important than Shoemaker-Levy 9. But uh, it was a very special, very, very special time that I spent with those two people, Gene and Carolyn. Yeah, I had the opportunity to meet them on a couple of occasions. They they had an impact on you when you met them. They really did. They, they certainly did. Yeah. And what about Clyde Tomba? My father, when I was a kid, was telling us at dinner the story of the discovery of the three outermost planets: Uranus with mm-hmm. with William Herschel, Neptune with uh, with Adams and Leverrier, and finally Pluto with Clyde Tomba. And he was trying to explain how the motions of each of these planets led to the discovery of the other one. And uh, I remember at a, I was sitting at a uh, conference. I was a, an asthmatic when I was a teenager. I had to spend a year and a half in Denver. <clears throat> and I went to a symposium on the exploration of Mars. And they had the first lecture. And then they opened the auditorium up to questions. And the first person to ask a question stood up and introduced himself. He said, Clyde Tombaugh, New Mexico State University. And I couldn't believe it. I'm in the same room as the man who discovered Pluto. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I was too shy, of course, to introduce myself to him at the time. I didn't meet him for another 20 years or so. But then we got to be very close friends. And he was one of the biographies that I wrote back then in the mid-80s, mid to late 1980s. I believe I have that book. I'm pretty sure I do. (laughs) Wow. Very good. Um, Are there, let's say someone's just starting out in astronomy. What what advice would you give someone that's just starting out? Somebody just starting out? Yeah. I would say the best thing to get involved in is meteor observing. Because observing meteors teaches you the sky. It forces you to learn the sky as nothing else will. You're comfortable. You're sitting outside in a lawn chair. <laughs> and you're just looking up at the stars on the night where there's a meteor shower and counting the meteors that you might see over the course of an hour or two. And uh, I would recommend meteor observing. I still do it. Mm-hmm. I still love doing it. And much as comet hunting is my signature uh, sport right now, my favorite right now is meteor observing. And yeah, I've, I've recently got back into that too. I just like the ability just to lay outside in dark sky with a hot chocolate, little notebook, <laughs> and just count meteors all night. It's a lot of fun. And as we both know, the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers has a very good yes. meteor section. Yes, uh, Bob Lunsford. I've had him on the podcast a number of times. Yeah. He's, he's a very good guy. Enjoy having him on. That now you were with the ALPO for a number of years too. As weren't you the comet recorder at one time? I was. I was yeah. a comet recorder and meteors recorder for a very short okay. time. Okay. Uh, yeah. But I remember my first 
view of uh, Las Cruces. I was on a trip through the southwestern United States with my grandparents. We were driving into Albuquerque, and I thought, oh, great, we might get to meet Walter Haas, mm -hmm. the founder of the ALPO. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at a lot of the buildings in downtown Albuquerque, almost positive that one of those tall buildings was <laughs> the headquarters of the ALPO. <laughs> I never realized at the time it was just Walter's small house. Right. But, um, <clears throat> but you know, and I remember Walter and I had a good laugh over that in year, later years. <laughs> and we, uh, I never got to meet him at that time, but it was just neat knowing that the headquarters was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> I remember yeah. earlier in that trip going to Lowell Observatory, being taken on a tour of that observatory by Robert Burnham. Mm, my goodness. Burnham's Celestial Handbook and about right. half a dozen comets. Right. And when I told him that I was also searching for comets, he said, I can only give you one piece of advice. Avoid the Milky Way, mm -hmm. avoid the Virgo group <laughs> of galaxies, and never, ever give up. Because if you search long enough, someday you will find a comet. That's true. I'm not so sure that that's true anymore, but it was at the time. Yeah, there there aren't many visual discoveries taking place with all the sky surveys going on right now. Yeah, it makes it virtually impossible for people like us to keep on finding comets. But are you still looking? Still looking. In fact, I was looking just last night, oh. and I may look a little bit tonight. The moon's getting bright, though, but I may look a little bit tonight. Great. Now, what astronomy books... Um, would you say you have in your bookshelf and you've probably worn out the binding on those? Well, there are a number of them. The one that uh, there's Starlight Nights, of course, which everyone should read. Mm -hmm. uh, there's sitting next to it is my own autobiography, A Night Watchman's Journey, that was published just last year by the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. Um. My first book, Our Sun and the Worlds Around It, is one I still have here. And it's a children's book. It's a golden book about astronomy. And there are others. But uh, uh, it's, it's, pretty hard. it's pretty hard to say. And, of course, I have a lot of Shakespeare. Nah. If you want to really know about what astronomy was like back then in the day, you got to learn Shakespeare. Really? That guy... <clears throat> If he were to come back and knock on the door, he wouldn't want to talk about his plays. He'd want to talk about CCDs <laughs> and uh, astronomy because I'm pretty convinced that he had a great, and he had an interest in practically everything, but astronomy was one of the things. I've and never heard that. On at 14, he says, and yet me thinks I have astronomy. He even said it, even wrote <laughs> it, that he has astronomy. Wow. Did not know that. You're, you're quite the student of Shakespeare. Not from the stars do I my judgment pluck. <laughs> and yet me thinks I have astronomy. Oh, this is awesome. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, change subjects a little bit. What's your go-to order at your favorite hometown restaurant? My favorite hometown restaurant has got to be... That you can... that they Not during quarantine, you know, normal times. Well, besides Wendy's cooking? Ah, uh, good, good. She must be listening. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good point. <laughs> it's, um, Wendy, what's the name of that place on uh, Houghton? No, the one that we always go to with um, with Bob Masterson. Hot Rods. 
Hot it rods. Is a place where there, it's never crowded. Lots of tables. In fact, there's always social distancing there. <laughs> and you get a big view. What they do is they repair cars and they have a restaurant. And the restaurant has this beautiful set of bay windows. You can look at the car repairs going on. And uh, it's turned out to be our favorite place. Really? And, and where, where is that located? It's in Vail. Okay. Actually, it's in Rita Ranch, which is about maybe five or six miles away from where I live. And a very exciting, very exciting, interesting spot to um, to eat and to enjoy a little bit of uh, going out when we can. Although we haven't been there in a very long time because of this uh, emergency going on. Is that the first place you're going to go? Probably, yeah. probably when they. Yeah. What, what What are you going to order? Well, I usually order a hamburger without bread. Just the just the meat part and okay. a salad, and Wendy likes to have some chicken a chicken meal of some sort. Yeah, and uh, we really do enjoy that, and we enjoy the conversation. When guests are coming in from out of town, we usually meet them there, and the ambiance is just very special. Yeah. So if any of you your listeners visit Tucson, that's the place we recommend. Okay, and it's got a garage attached to it. And it's got a garage right on the same building. Fantastic. I love that. I could I could picture it in my mind. That's good. Hold on. What, pardon, Wendy? Yeah, and the bay windows allow you to watch the detailing of the cars going on. Oh, nice. Very good. Probably get some classic cars in there once in a while. And Oh, a lot of them, yes. Yeah? To watch. Fantastic. So what are you curious about right now in the world? I'm curious, I guess, about when this pandemic is going to end, if it's going to end. Mm. Um, I wonder if we're ever going to find out that there is another civilization out there, if we are not alone. I suspect that someday we will find that out. We will find out that we are not alone. But, um, but it's a very interesting question. And one day we might actually, True. Might actually see that. I think that the movie... Contact, Carl Sagan's last work, his last film work, was uh, is really something I enjoy immensely watching. I watch it over and over again. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. And, uh, I like the way it ends because they're still not really sure it happened. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but it's a wonderful story and um, very strongly recommended. Yeah. Now, you've been a very successful amateur astronomer. What, but and you mentioned earlier that you failed at a lot of things. What's something that you failed at? Oh, I failed at physics. <clears throat> I went to McGill as a physics major, and I flunked physics, chemistry, math, and uh, and uh, geography. And they, because I was an asthmatic, they let me in to repeat the year. And that second year, I failed physics, chemistry, <laughs> and math. <Yeah. laughs> So and, the astronomy degree was out the window at that point, probably, or? Astronomy was totally out the window at that point. <laughs> and I'm so glad that's what happened. Good thing you had it to fall back on, though, right? <laughs> I'm so glad because I would never have done what I've done if I had just gone and on and become a professional astronomer. That's true. I'd be, I'd be saying, I can't talk to you anymore. I have to finish this application form for more money, which I'm not going to get. And uh, so I can do my research, but instead, as an amateur astronomer, I don't do that. I just enjoy it. Right. 
Now, being a comet hunter, you're a visual observer. Yes, I am. I do take pictures. Okay. In fact, I've taken thousands upon thousands of photographs of the night sky in a search for comets. But um, the main thing and my main claim to fame is as a visual comet observer and hunter. Right. Right. So what are some future projects you're looking at down the road? Well, I'd like to finish this book about our dog, the magic, the magic beagle and his trip through the universe. Uh, I think that's a lot of fun because I would like to use that book to inspire kids Mm -hmm. to become astronomy, not the way I did so much, but in their own ways. And perhaps if they sat down and read an adventure story about a beagle Mm. taking a a magic telescope through the sky and pointing out the stars, planets, and constellations and galaxies, they might develop an interest in the night sky. And that remains my wish. I really would like people to do that. It is so important. It is. So very important to do that. Yeah. Sorry, you asked me earlier in the... uh, interview about Shoemaker Levy 9, just briefly, uh, as we're doing our um, searching, and Carolyn is scanning the images we had taken the night before, and she said, I don't know what this is, Mm. but it looks like a squashed comet. Mm. And Jean was looking at it, and Carolyn went and stood next to me, and uh, I looked at her, and I smiled, and I said, you are kidding, aren't you? And she said, uh-uh. And her hands were shaking, so I figured she wasn't. Oh, my. And when I first took a look at that and saw the the dust trains going out and the multiple nuclei, I'd never, ever seen anything quite like that. And then when the comet, when we, when the comet was going to collide with Jupiter and the news and the excitement yeah. that generated was absolutely incredible. And uh, that was clearly the highlight of my astronomical career and uh it still remains that way when i go outside like i did last night around midnight 1 a.m and see jupiter rising in the east Mm. i'm thinking that's my world yeah and i have to tell you it's one of the highlights of my amateur astronomy career as well i mean that's one night i will never ever ever forget i mean i was at a public star party and just watching Jupiter rotate around and you see a little black dot on the corner and you're like, holy mackerel, there is something there, you know, I'll never forget that feeling. The sky isn't static. It's moving. Right. right. It does things. Things happen in the sky. Things do go bump in the night. That's why I love looking at the moon and planets because every half an hour, it's going to look different. Yeah. Beautiful that way. Now you mentioned uh, uh, your, your, uh, your book with your beagle. You wanted to uh, 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 touch younger children, get them excited about astronomy. What do you think the future of amateur astronomy is right now? Well, it's, I believe it's going to be a lot less actually going outside and sitting on that precious lawn chair and looking for shooting stars and a lot more expensive astrophotographic mounts and uh, automated photography but in a way i'm sad about that because Mm -hmm. i think i think it's much better to be able to to sit outside on the lawn chair and look up at the constellations because to me that's the truth of what 
amateur astronomy is all about. It's enjoying the night sky. The amateur word is from the Latin to love. And an amateur astronomer, by definition, loves the sky as I do. Very true. So Very I think true. it's, I think it's there. I think uh, organizations like the ALPO are still going to be around and are going to be encouraging people to do proper observations, both visually and photographically, of the moon and planets, and uh, to be able to to be able to study these things that move through the sky from night to night is really something that's we're blessed with. Mm-hmm. And uh, something else that when when we finish our day, and the days have been rough lately, when we're at home and we're not able to get out, at night we can open the back door, go outside, and look up in perfect silence at the stars. Mm. It is so very special. Very, very true. It actually reminds me of uh, Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken, which is really my favorite poem. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Hmm. Very well said. Thank you. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I had talked to you about? Well, only that uh, I, I was able to say a little bit about Comet Shoemaker Levy 9, mm-hmm. um, but that wouldn't have happened if I had gotten straight A's at McGill. Mm-hmm. That would not have happened if I had done very well at McGill. But because I flunked out of McGill and was able to do the uh, the field that I really was interested in and keep astronomy as my avocation, I was able to accomplish what I was able, what I what I really was meant to do, and I've I believe I've lived the life I was meant to, and yeah, it's I'm, not over yet. It's uh, no. I'm a, I'm a young seventy two right now, <laughs> and so I'm hoping to be around for at least twenty twenty five thirty more years to enjoy the sky, and maybe we'll find out in those thirty years that we are not alone in the in the cosmos. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I hope you. I hope you're. I hope you're right, David. Yeah. Now, how can everybody get in contact with you if they're interested? Well, again, uh, the email which I prefer you use okay. is Eureka, E U R E K A. Dot instead of echo. That's one word. Instead of E C H O echo, at iCloud.com. Okay, and I will put that in the show notes so people can easily. Uh, get a hold of you if they need to. And you also, a web, you also have a website, and I'll put that in there as well. Well, the website isn't active anymore, but oh, I have not? a Facebook presence. Oh, you do? Okay. I do, and I'm on Zoom quite a bit and, uh, and stuff. Okay. Well, this has been wonderful, David. I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much. All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer Notebook Podcast, episode 100. Wow, I really want to thank David Levy for coming on and being very entertaining uh, on the podcast today. I hope you all really enjoyed it as much as I did. 
We upload a new episode of The Observer's Notebook on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I do appreciate it. You can also listen to us on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, and the Amazon Echo. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon for giving up to $135 a month, where you receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I want to thank the producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer, for their generous support of the Observer's Notebook. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is in the show notes. If you'd like to contact me via email, you can contact me at Cometman at Cometman.net, how appropriate with David Levy on the show, or on Twitter at, at ObserversNBPod. Until next time, my hope is that you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>